Romans chapter 8, and if you're super adept, you might also put a finger in Isaiah chapter 6, because we'll get there in a few moments. Romans chapter 8, and if you want to, put a finger in Isaiah chapter 6. We will be studying the person and the work of the Holy Spirit for 12 weeks, for 12 weeks. And there is amongst us a sense of expectation And that expectation is not in anything other than Christ and who he is as the senior pastor of the church, as the head over the church, as the great shepherd of our souls. There is an expectancy of what he wants to do in our church and in our lives together this summer. So let's just pray over that. Christ, we are overjoyed this morning that you are the great shepherd of our souls. We are wonderfully aware that Christ, you came and demonstrated the love of the Father for us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. So we say thank you, Father, that you love us that way. And we say thank you to the Holy Spirit for manifesting the love of the Father in our hearts and in this place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing us into the presence of God. We join with the psalmist in saying to you, God, in thy presence is the fullness of joy. And there is nothing on earth we desire besides thee. You are the reason that our hearts beat, that we have breath, that we get out of bed in the morning. Christ, you are the cause and the consummation for all that is good. And we humble ourselves before you, Christ. You you alone are king. You're the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords. You're high and exalted. We humble ourselves in your presence and we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things, that you lead us into all truth, that you witness to our hearts of the love of the Father and you exalt the person of Christ in our lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that right now in our church you're drawing us into holiness in a new way wanting to purify your church. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're present and you're going to speak to us now. And I humble myself before you and I confess my unworthiness and my inability. And so we ask together that for the glory of Christ and the well-being of the church, you please anoint me to speak your truth. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8. We're going to just read verses 1 through 6 and just kind of let it sit as a backdrop to this introduction to the series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking just about the person of the Holy Spirit and overview. And we just want these verses to just kind of sit as a backdrop to what we'll be talking about. Okay? This is from the NLT. Romans chapter 8 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. What becomes evident as we read that portion of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. Indeed, we might simply say that the Christian life is life in the Spirit. That is the Christian life. It is life in the Spirit. So let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of, the who of the Holy Spirit. Now next week, we're gonna get to the work of the Holy Spirit, the what of the Holy Spirit. But it is important that we begin with an understanding of who he is, not just what he does. That's very important. Think of it in these terms. Think think of ourselves in our culture. We often have a tendency to value what over who. This is evidenced by the fact that when we meet people, we're very quick to say, nice to meet you. What do you do? Now, that's not superfluous because what we do is important. And it may reveal much about us. But what we do is not the whole story about us. If you were to answer that question, well, I I dig ditches. That's what I do. I dig ditches. So is that then the end of the story? I'm a ditch digger? Or is there more? Are, are, Are you more than that? Are you a person who has hopes and dreams, fears and loves, gifts received and gifts to give, a person who has wounds and who has grace, and which then tells the truer story about you? I dig ditches? Or the deeper revelation of who you are, not just what you do, who you love and who you're loved by, what you're passionate about and what drives you and even what holds you back. You see, but we can be a painfully self-oriented culture at times. And so we often wonder first about each other, what do you do? Because in that question, we're seeking to answer what we all want to know. What can you do for me? And therein lies the problem with much of our approach to the Holy Spirit. 
The question is, what can the Spirit do for me? What sort of experience can he give me? What sort of power or gift can he give me? And that's not the right place to start. That is the wrong approach to God. Now, it's much easier to talk about a person or God or the Holy Spirit in that way with regards to what they do as opposed to who they are. Getting to who someone is is a bit more difficult. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's even more difficult because who really understands what spirit is? I mean, who really gets the concept of spirit? And then if you read the old King James, and I see some of you that do, it confounds it even more because the old King James calls him the Holy Ghost. Who really understands things like spirit and ghost? These are ethereal, mysterious, and hard to pin down. We don't even really comprehend what our own spirit is, much less the spirit of God. At least in comparison to the other members of the Trinity, for whom we have reference points and analogy, Father, we, we have some, some picture of Father, Son, we have some understanding of Son. They may be broken understandings, but at least in comparison to the other members of the Trinity, these terms, Spirit and Ghost, are not as familiar. They're not as familial either. They seem remote removed, maybe even cold compared to father and son. And at least on an emotional, psychological, and even theological level, spirit can seem at times a bit distant and intimidating to many of us. And what adds to the mystery of this is the adjective given to us, holy. Who we're talking about is not just spirit, but he is the holy spirit. And what does holy really mean? We say it a lot, and we sing it a lot, but what does holy actually mean? The root significance in Scripture has to do with otherness. It has to do with being separate from, placed at a distance, set apart. It's spatial language, okay? Spatial language, it gets toward the point of otherness. And at the core of the otherness, the holiness of God, is moral quality. God is, has moral distance from us. He's set apart in moral quality, holiness. And that moral distance is illustrated by spatial language and imagery. And it's seen well in this passage of Isaiah chapter 6, where I told you to put a finger. Isaiah chapter 6 illustrates the spatial language of moral distance. Verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. 
The whole earth is filled with his glory. And their voices shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it's all over. I am doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Here we see that idea of distance, moral separation. God is seen in this story as high and lifted up, exalted. Isaiah is pictured as being low and thrusted down. God's presence, the train of his robe, fills the whole temple with glory. Indeed, the whole earth is full of his glory, the seraphim say. While Isaiah seems to be shrinking back and cowering in a corner as the building is shaking. God is being declared by the seraphim to be holy, holy, holy. And the prophet is discovering himself to be sinful, unclean, and undone. He says, it's all over. I am doomed. And so here we start to see something about God's holiness. One theologian says, God's holiness is the searing purity of his eternal, infinite being. The searing purity of his infinite being. So then, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God, this searing, pure, morally distant, high and exalted other, this holy, 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 is who he is. But we also understand the Father and the Son to have that same searing moral purity. So what then is distinct about the Spirit as opposed to the Father and the Son? So we start to think about that concept again of Spirit or Ghost. And what what, what comes to most of our minds quickly is the idea of immaterialism. Okay, it's a Spirit. It's immaterial. A Ghost is an immaterial thing. But that is not at all what the Bible is getting at when it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Spirit in Hebrew is that word ruach. You're familiar with it. And in Greek, it's pneuma. You, put, you pronounce the P. It's pneuma in Greek and ruach in Hebrew. These terms are onomatopoeic terms. You know what that is. You know what an onomatopoeia is, right? It is a word that is created as a word because of the sound it creates, like sizzle. You know that. Like boom, right? Like How? Like bang. Like cuckoo. (laughs) Those are onomatopoeias. Now, ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek carry the idea of the expulsion of wind or breath. Air in motion. (laughs) It's that idea. They're onomatopoeias. So spirit then, as a reference to God, expresses in its most fundamental form the breath of life. The breath of life. Power, energy, and life from God. Now the point of that, again, of spirit, is not immateriality, but rather the presence and energy and activity of God. 
What's in view when we say spirit is energy rather than immateriality. Action rather than absence. Power, not impersonality. So to say Holy Spirit is not to say morally removed immaterial otherness, but it is to say rather the searing, purity, and active, present power of God. But here's where we must be careful. We must remember that the Holy Spirit is not merely energy, nor an impersonal it. We don't speak of the Holy Spirit as it. That would be if I came up to you and said, what does it think? It's a person, okay? Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person, a who, not an it. Not a person in the same way that we are persons, but in the same way that the Father is a person and the Son is a person. So we must not say that the Holy Spirit is merely exerted energy from God, as some have said throughout the history of the church. Or that he's merely the eternally preceding energy of God manifest in the world. That's classic heresy. That's not historic Christian orthodoxy. To believe that the Holy Spirit is an it or merely a power is to deny Scripture, malign God, and be guilty of heresy. And a denial of the personhood of the Holy Spirit is a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, an essential Christian doctrine. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Let me read to us an excerpt from the Athanasian Creed, okay? Fourth and fifth centuries. Here's what it says about the Trinity. We worship one God in Trinity, the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the, fa- of the Father of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, a Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is the Lord, the Son is the Lord, and the Holy Spirit the Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. As paradoxical and as strange as it is, that is Orthodox Christian belief, that God is three who's, one what. Three persons, one essence. And the Holy Spirit is presented in Scripture as having the same essential deity as the Father and the Son. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped. The Holy Spirit is to be adored. The Holy Spirit is to be loved, and the Holy Spirit is to be obeyed as God. 
Now, the idea of the Ruach Kodesh, that's Holy Spirit in Hebrew, is not energy from God. Rather, it describes God extending himself in active engagement with his creation in a person, in a personal way. The holy extending of the power and the love of God to creation in himself. He's not sending forth power. He's sending forth himself. Now, one of the things that we understand about God is that God is omnipresent, right? God is everywhere all the time. That's one of our core understandings of the doctrine of God. But we also realize that there is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. There's a difference between God being everywhere in the world all the time and the way that Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai. There's a difference between God being present in all the earth all the time and the way Daniel encountered God at the riverside. There's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God that Isaiah encountered in the temple that caused him to say, I am undone. And this manifest presence of God is something dear to us. And this manifest presence of God seems to be attributed in Scripture to the person of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 39, 29, God says, I will no longer hide my face from them. My face in Scripture is a... a, a, a communicating presence. I will no longer hide my presence from them. For I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. Absence of spirit, absence of manifest presence. Bringing presence, pouring out spirit. Psalm 139. Where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? So in scripture, the manifest presence of God, that tangible radical thing, is associated with the spirit of God. That's why there's this prayer that we often pray, made popular some time ago by John Wimber, where we say, come, Holy Spirit. What we're saying is that we want the presence, the power, and the activity of God in our midst. And thy presence is fullness of joy. Come, Holy Spirit bringing the Holy Spirit of God into our midst in a tangible way. Now, he doesn't always, excuse me, he doesn't only bring the holy presence of God, but he also brings the loving presence of God. For yes, God is holy, but we also understand that God is love. And there is a deep and unique connection concerning the Holy Spirit with the love of God even in his very essence of who he is within the Trinity. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, hundreds of years ago, called the Holy Spirit the kiss of the Father and the Son. Okay, these are the ancients trying to understand this, this connection between the Spirit and love within the Trinity. The kiss of the Father and the Son. When great theologians whom we esteem have tried to describe the Holy Spirit, who he is, not just what he does. They often resort to language and imagery of love and delight 
within the Trinity. Jonathan Edwards said this, the Holy Spirit is the delight that the Father and the Son have in each other. And he carries in himself so fully the essence of the Father and the Son that he himself stands forth as a third person in his own right. It's hard to understand. He's trying to get at something that's real deep there. C.S. Lewis, perhaps more helpful, said, Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you'll not think me irreverent, he says, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person, the Holy Spirit. Now, when you want to get to know someone, it helps if you figure out who they love. And you learn a lot when you discover who loves them. And so we start to learn a lot about the Holy Spirit when we see whom he loves and who loves him. And what's evident is that the Father loves the Spirit and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son and in some way is representative of the love between the Father and the Son. When you're trying to get to know somebody, you often look for references. We were recently hiring someone at the church, and we called nine people who knew them looking for references. I've had many of you come up to me when you're looking for a boyfriend and say, what do you think about so-and-so? <laughs> looking for references and endorsements. And you generally want to ask when you're looking for that, someone close to the person. So if we were to ask those closest to the Spirit, the Father and the Son, how they felt about Him. Jesus tells us how the Father feels in Luke 24, 49 when He says the Holy Spirit is the promised gift of the Father. How does the Father feel about the Spirit? He's the Father's gift to the world. He's precious to the Father. He's the promise of the Father. How does the Son feel about the Spirit? Jesus actually says in John 16, during his earthly ministry, it's to your advantage that I leave because if I go, I will send to you the Helper, the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus feel about the Holy Spirit? He says, it's better that he be with you than I be with you in physical form. These are deep expressions. The Father and the Son see the person of the Holy Spirit as a tremendous love gift to humanity. And they, they even seem to exhibit a sense of protection over the person of the Holy Spirit. Right? In, in Luke chapter 12, verse 10, Jesus says this. Any sin you commit against the Son, speaking of himself, 
shall be forgiven you. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. There seems to be this intense sense of love and protection over the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see in Scripture is that both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to us. And it's almost funny <clears throat> that there is this, <clears throat> excuse me, beautiful, loving, co-claiming by the Father and the Son. Almost, almost a Trinitarian argument about who is sending, who gets to give this gift to the world. Because in John 14, 26, Jesus says this, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And then exactly one chapter later in John 15, 16, Jesus says this, when the Helper comes, who, will, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. There seems to be such a reverence and love within the Trinity for the first person of the Spirit that they're, they're almost a holy argument over who gets to give the Spirit to the world. Andrew Murray got at this when he said this. The most precious gift of the Father's love in Christ is the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and lead us. The Christian life is life in the Spirit. And there then is this thing that we're trying to get at in this love between the members of the Trinity. Some sort of special endearing quality having to do with the Spirit. He's spoken of by theologians as, as the kiss between the Father and Son, the, the delight between them, the, the, the representative of the union between them. <clears throat> and we see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is portrayed with this real sweetness, if I can say it that way. But listen to the kind of language that's employed. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Romans 8.6. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 15.13. You will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1. The Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 15. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Listen to that language. Freedom. Comfort. Peace. Joy. Confident assurance. Life. All of these things and the sweet quality to them that are for the Christian life are of the person of the Holy Spirit. So then, as we start to think about this, far from being sort of distant and mysterious, far from having cold connotations, there is an incredible sense of warmth and tenderness in the person of the Holy Spirit directed at the church and the believer. 
Jesus gets to this when he uses the Greek phrase parakletos to refer to the Holy Spirit. It's translated helper, comforter, advocate, intercessor. He says, I'm going to give to you a comforter, a helper, an intercessor, an advocate who is the person of the Holy Spirit. That tells us so much about who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the one who is always ready to comfort you. The one who is always ready to help you. The one who is always ready to intercede for you. The one who is always ready to advocate for you. That's his very nature. That's the quality of who he is. Imagine if you were investigating a person and you said, Britt, tell me about this person. And I said, this person is always there and ready to comfort you, to advocate for you, to intercede for you, to help you in every way. This person is of freedom and brings life and peace and joy Confident assurance. This person has such a tenderness that when they're with you, you'll be crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. But the sweetness of the Holy Spirit is combined with tremendous holiness once again, which brings a balance and tells us more. When getting to try to know someone for who they really are, it helps if you figure out what they don't like. That tells you much about them or what bothers them. What wounds them? What hurts them? Tells us much about somebody. Now, the Holy Spirit cannot be wounded per se, but Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. So there's this tremendous sensitivity. What bothers that person? There is this tremendous sensitivity to sin in the person of the Spirit. There's a tremendous sensitivity to lies and untruths. Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church And the apostles say, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And the consequences were dire. There's this tremendous sensitivity to sin, lies and untruths that grieves the person of the Holy Spirit. We all understand that honesty is one of the greatest qualities in a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs 27, 6. Now, Jesus in John 15, 15 calls us his friends. Abraham was called the friend of God. So too, we can think of the Holy Spirit as our friend. And honesty is the most wonderful quality in a friend. And if we press him to the Holy Spirit, we will discover him to be a good friend in this area. Because the Holy Spirit will always tell us the truth about ourselves, about God, and about our sin. He will always lead us into truth in those areas. John 16 says the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So 
so the Spirit, though sweet and tender, will never make us feel okay about our sin. It's not who he is. It's not what he does. He lovingly, sweetly, tenderly convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit will always tell us the truth about our life. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is giving his farewell address to the elders from the church in Ephesus. And he says there, I don't know what awaits me. Verse 23 now. He says, but the Spirit is solemnly testifying to me that in every city I'm going to, there awaits for me afflictions and bonds. He said, the Spirit is telling me that from this day forward, things are going to be incredibly difficult for me. He says, and so I go bound in the Spirit. Now listen, any friend will tell you everything is going to be okay. But a truly great friend who truly loves you is willing to tell you when things aren't going to be okay. The Spirit is telling me that everywhere I'm going, there awaits for me affliction. Jesus was the same way when he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The Holy Spirit will always tell you the truth about you about God, about sin, and about your life. He's a trusted friend. When I really want to get to know who somebody is and get past what they merely do, I sometimes ask them this. What are you passionate about? What drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And there are three things that Scripture makes very clear the Holy Spirit is passionate about. Jesus, holiness, and mission. The Holy Spirit is passionate about Jesus. Read the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is intent on and is sent into the world to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. There's no mistaking that. The Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. He is passionate about the Son, always looking to exalt the Son in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. And in that, we discover that the Holy Spirit is humble and submissive. He is equal to the Father and the Son, but He is always seen in Scripture as submitted to the Father and the Son. So there we learn something more. The Holy Spirit is Christ-centered, and He is humble, and He is submitted. He's passionate about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is passionate about holiness. In our lives, he is the one who sanctifies us, convicts us of sin, frees us from sin, leads us in sanctification, conforms us to the image of, son, of the Son. He is, in his own character, pure and undefiled. And the Holy Spirit is passionate about mission. He is active, 
and compassionate when it comes to the world. He cares about the plight of the world and the people in the world, and he's active in the world. The book of the Acts is the book of Acts, excuse me, is the story of the Holy Spirit on mission in the world, using the apostles, using the church. But it is a story of the person of the Holy Spirit on mission in the world. Now, this becomes our paradigm as we think through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit over the next 12 weeks. The Holy Spirit is passionate about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is passionate about holiness, and he is passionate about mission. Therefore, as we seek the person of the Holy Spirit, we can always expect him to lead us more into Christ, more into a life of holiness, and more into a surrendered life of mission. That is always what the Spirit will be doing. And where those three things are valued in a life or in a church, where they are esteemed and practiced, it is there that the Spirit will be found. The Spirit is most present where Jesus is most central. The Spirit is most present where holiness is being pursued. The Spirit is most present where mission is being accomplished. Now, all of this has been an attempt to sort of bring things down to our level with the guidance of Scripture to help us grasp what is really hard to grasp, who the Spirit is apart from what He does. But we can only go so far Because for at the end of the day, there is a tremendous and wonderful amount of mystery that surrounds the person of the Holy Spirit. Even Scripture begins to lose language when describing the Holy Spirit. And and it starts to employ symbols to speak about who he is, like fire, like water like oil, like wind. As one theologian says, when the Holy Spirit comes on individuals, they are caught up in the thrust of an alien energy and exercise unusual powers. The faint are raised into action. Exceptional human abilities are demonstrated. Ecstasy may be experienced. Yahweh's ruach is, as it were, the blast of God. The irresistible power by which he accomplishes his purposes. Those who are subject to the activity of the divine ruach act in supernatural ways with supernatural energy and powers. And yet, as a paradox, also often with unparalleled gentleness and meekness and perseverance and kindness for the fruit of the Spirit himself is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. There's this sense of the blast of God. 
but this sweet meekness so that it's like Jesus and he endeavors to make us like Jesus who could calm the raging sea and cradle the little child. Who could expel a legion of demons and embrace the suffering leper. Who could with violence overturn the tables of the corrupt and with incredible compassion pardon the sins of the woman caught in adultery. Power, the blast of God, meekness, humility, gentleness, the person of the Spirit. So what does this mean for us? We know for sure, and we'll talk about this summer, that God has made this person, the Holy Spirit, available to us. Indeed, he dwells in every Christian man, woman, and child. Andrew Murray says the Spirit displaces our life and replaces it with the life of Christ in power to make the Son of God divinely and consciously present with us always. So here we are, attempting to gain a little bit of understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. With this in mind, The goal being, we want more of God. That's what we want. That's what we need. We are in this pursuit of the person of the Holy Spirit, joining with the psalmist who says, besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the cry of the heart. God, we want more of you. And somehow that is deeply and wonderfully and mysteriously, tangibly connected to the person of the Holy Spirit. There is so much to him. He is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord. The Holy One the eternal spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, the spirit of glory, and the spirit of faith, the spirit of life, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of grace and supplication, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, the helper, the witness, the intercessor, the dove, the promised gift of the Father, the living water, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of holiness, the author of Scripture, the convictor of sin, the seal and guarantee of our salvation. He is the teacher of all things, the power of God, the fire of God, the rushing wind of God, the outpouring of God, the oil of God, the anointing of God the believer's guide, and the indwelling presence of God in every Christian. Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that Christ, your life, might replace our life.
that Jesus, you might become more central and we might become more humble. That Father, for your glory, we might grow in holiness. And for thy kingdom's sake, we might live lives on mission. And so we say together, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come work the work of God in our church, in our lives, and in our cities. All of our hope is in you. All of our expectation is in you. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful promise. In Jesus' name, amen.